Hello, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. This week we're going to Tasmania to find out more about the largest recorded stranding of pilot whales ever. When I first got there, I didn't realise that it was all the whales out there until you'd seen the water splashing where the big whales were stuck. It kind of looked like a, a heap of dead trees in the forest. But first, did you know that in the Hunter Valley, on the edge of the Barrington Tops National Park, in an area of alpine and subalpine wilderness a few hours north of Newcastle, Tasmanian devils are making a home for themselves? It's the first population wild on the mainland since dingoes wiped them out about 3,000 years ago. The Tassie devil is under serious threat in its home ranges. Devil facial tumour disease has killed thousands of them, reducing populations by up to 90% since it was discovered in the late 90s. The animal could soon be extinct on the island, but a number of insurance colonies are being maintained in Tasmania should the worst happen. And last year, Aussie Ark, a group dedicated to ensuring the marsupial's survival, released 26 devils back into the wild at their sanctuary in the Barrington Tops. To find out more, producer Laura Corrigan and I visited the devils at their home, what Aussie Ark calls a little slice of Tasmania on the Australian mainland. So it's about half the size of a soccer ball. Slightly more cuddly than soccer balls typically are. Can you tell them apart? Ah, uh, yes. So this one here is Phyllis. And this is little Dwight. And I understand Dwight lives with you. Ah, uh, yeah, they both do. Yeah, so um, certainly an interesting little household we've got up, up there at the moment. Within moments of our arrival, two adorable devil joeys are thrust into my arms. Kelly Davis has been raising them by hand at her home. She lives full-time up here on the mountain. You learn to be really organised with your shopping and things because you forget a bottle of milk, then you're not going the three-hour round trip to get some. So definitely had to be a little bit more organised. But yeah, I love it up here. It's, it's an amazing place to be. The Devil Joe is acute and playful. They nuzzle into my arms. One nibbles on my finger, my sleeve. But they don't make great pets. They're very sweet when they're little. Uh, when they grow up, I know I wouldn't call them a, a good good pet, I don't think. Um, they very much decide, you know, during that sexual maturity time that they're devils and, and they act as such. So um, they're not tame or domesticated or anything like that. They just um, have an association with people that does fade over time. And then they go back to a devilish life. Kelly has raised eight devils by hand so far. Joeys that can't be taken care of by their mothers for one reason or another. She says it's always sad when it's time to release them into the larger enclosures and say goodbye. It's sort of like sending your kid to school or having them move out of home. It's an inevitable part of it. Yeah, it's just sort of something that, that we do need to live with, I suppose. But yeah, it pulls the heartstrings, certainly. She takes us on a drive in a dusty ATV. Well, actually, I do the driving because Kelly unfortunately rolled her ankle. That's reverse? Yep. Aussie Ark owns about 3,000 hectares of land here in the Barrington Tops. 400 hectares is dedicated to a wild sanctuary where devils and quolls live free. They live in a kind of harmony, as devils are predominantly scavengers and don't predate on the spotty mammals. A specialty fence keeps cats and foxes out. The next steps are securing areas, then ridding them of feral pests. And these are all feral proof, these fences, these big sort of two and a half metre high. We're standing just on the inside of the vast sanctuary. The scrub is thick and eucalypts tower above us. 
It was a hot summer day when we left Newcastle, but not up here. Kelly tells us that this is about as close to home as the devils will get in New South Wales. We've had some people, locals from Tasmania, come up and they say, oh, it's just the same. So uh, if they think so and the devils seem to think so, then, yeah, it's a, a lovely environment to be in. The devils that are released into the sanctuary are selected for their genetic diversity. So genetics is super important when it comes to Tasmanian devils. So they've already gone through a a lot of genetic bottlenecks. You've got the breakaway of Tasmania from mainland Australia. You had European settlement when the persecution of devils that went along with that that dropped their numbers again. And of course, devil facial tumour disease. So we have a, a really good genetic representation of Tasmanian devils here. And we've had that for about a decade now. And we just chose ones that obviously genetically suitable to breed as dissimilar as possible genetically so that they've got a really robust genetic diversity within the population inside here. On the gate are photos of those 26 lucky devils and their qual friends. They all have names. Some are named after the handlers. You can tell there's a lot of love between the handlers and the marsupials. Are you responsible for any of these? A lot of them, uh, to be fair. So Ginny and Tonks and McGonagall from the Harry Potter year. And then we've got Lisa and Miss Crabapple. They came from um, the Simpsons year. But I'm up there. Where am I? There I am. Kel. Between Tyler. Tyler actually came up with a lot of the quoll puns. Quoll floor and sausage quoll, <laughs> guaca quolly. There's not a lot to do on the mountain. It's quite an isolated environment. This is what we do with our spare time. But the genetically diverse Barrington Devils aren't just an insurance policy. For Tim Faulkner, president of Aussie Ark and director of the Australian Reptile Park, it's an opportunity to reintroduce a native predator to the mainland. So what we've now got are environments where we have no top-order predator and the placental mammals like the fox and cat are annihilating our small mammals. That's why Australia has the worst mammal extinction rate on Earth. We've lost as many small mammals in the past 200 years as the rest of the world put together and over 90% of those extinctions are directly related to the fox and cat. There were devils on the mainland, but dingoes made short work of them and they went extinct about 3,000 years ago. Tim believes reintroducing the species could give some of our small mammals, the betongs, the potteroos, the bandicoots and the wallabies whose populations are in freefall throughout the country, space to recover. Now, bring in the devil. So the dingo is, is being forcibly removed by humans. The fox and cat come in. You reintroduce the devil and the theory behind it is this, devils aren't great predators, okay? They're opportunistic predators. They'll take down sick, injured, or dying, but they're realistically scavengers. But where you have devils, they do two things. They can predate on the young of fox and cat down in their burrows and dens because they're left there. Secondarily, the presence of devils displaces or changes the behaviour of fox and cat. And those two give our small natives a chance. And our small natives have lived with devils for all of history. They get along. And there's growing evidence that Tim could be bang on here. My name's Callum Cunningham, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tasmania, where I focus my research on the effects of Tasmanian devils. Callum studies how the devil interacts with its environment and found that they don't get along with cats to the benefit of small mammals. We found that there were fewer southern brown bandicoots in areas where cat numbers had increased. And the southern brown bandicoot was the species that we chose to look at. But it's probably representative of many of the small mammals that have been lost or decimated on the Australian mainland. So it's probably a good indicator of 
potentially some of the protective benefits that devils could confer to an ecosystem. And we found that feral cats were twice as abundant in the areas of Tasmania where devils had declined. This increasing cat abundance in turn had a negative effect on some of the small mammals. Callum tells me about another case, similar to the Barrington Tops, where devils were introduced to an ecosystem where they hadn't previously been. 15 or 20 devils were introduced to Mariah Island back in about 2012. Since then, they've become very abundant and they've had quite a few profound effects on the ecosystem. So on Mariah Island, it's sort of a bit of a hodgepodge mix of species that weren't always there either. So there's been introductions of wombats and kangaroos and stuff like that. So it's, it's actually an environment that ends up quite well representing the fauna of Tasmania. With abundant devils, there are now about 100 on the island, behaviour of smaller mammals changed. Callum's study focused on the brush-tailed possum, which very quickly learnt to avoid the devils. As possums do, they spend a fair bit of time in trees, but when they become aware that there's little risk of being killed on the ground, they make widespread use of the ground. So you might notice this in when you go camping in areas with possums, they'll quite readily raid tents. So possums on Mariah Island before the devils were introduced, they were spending quite a lot of time foraging on the ground. After we saw the introduction of devils, the possums became quite a bit more possumy. Quite a few of them got killed by devils in the early days, but the ones that survived quickly learnt how to live alongside devils again. Callum is optimistic the devils will have some benefit to the ecology of the Barrington Tops. The big unknown is foxes. Tasmania fortunately doesn't have any foxes, so there's no telling how they might interact with the devils if they were to meet in Barrington. I think it's difficult to predict what their effects would be though, largely because there's this the unknown presence of foxes and it's not really clear how foxes might mediate the ecological effects of devils. It's another complicating factor there. But I suspect that I suspect that devils would do just fine around foxes and I suspect that they would compete with foxes for shared food, particularly through scavenging. So I think I would be surprised if introduction of devils to an area with foxes wouldn't provide some benefit. I don't think it would be the silver bullet, though. I don't think the arrival of devils would completely eradicate foxes. The truth is, it'll take a good few years for whatever effect the devils have on the environment, if any, to become clear. But Tim Faulkner has grand ambitions for their future. We'll see what happens. We will see how devils work within that landscape. And so do the devils have scope for broader utilisation? Absolutely. You know, you go camping in the Barringtons and there's a devil rare. What, what's wrong with that? You know, it's not going to eat your small children. And right now, all that's around your campsite is a fox. Let's replace it with a devil. So in that scope, you've got the entirety of East Coast, New South Wales, Victoria. We're talking an area that's three to four times the size of Tasmania, probably significantly larger. Tim says Tasmania is doing something right, and he wants to bring that to the mainland. You go to Tassie, you know, and people talk about this roadkill. It's horrific, right? But to see roadkill... The natives have to be there to be run over. I drive through the Barringtons and there ain't no roadkill because the bandicoots and the potteroos and the bedongs and the wallabies, they're gone. They're gone. They're not there to be. And Tassie, you go for a walk through the bush and you'll hear these sounds of our small mammals and something's gone very right down there. And, you know, we want in on that. Back at the tops, Kelly says all she's thinking about is giving the devils and all the other endangered native species here at Aussie Ark the best chance of survival. And what's the end goal? 
save the world. <laughs> you know, Australia is really struggling in terms of its wildlife. They need all the help we can give them. So we have this property here and, and the species that we've brought on board so far with Aussie Ark, but there's more species that need our help looking to expand into some other species, but also different sanctuaries, different properties that we're acquiring and have acquired. Different elevations all of a sudden mean a different set of species that are naturally found there that can exist there that used to be found there need to have their numbers built up and, and reintroductions back into those spaces. So the more that we're able to get those areas of land and, and introduce those other species, the, the more good we can do. That's Kelly Davis, devil handler at Aussie Ark, speaking with me in the Barrington Tops. Now, Australia's largest whale stranding in recorded history made international headlines in September. Hundreds of pilot whales beached in the shallow waters in and around Macquarie Harbour on Tasmania's rugged west coast. Producer Lara Corrigan takes us to the fishing village of Strawn at the centre of the tragedy. The community was in shock when we first found out and a little bit of disbelief that it was so many whales that had been stranded. So it, a very sombre mood when we were out there on that Monday watching the whales and, and waiting to see what was going to happen and whether or not there was going to be a, a rescue possible. My name is Kaya Davey. I am the manager and director of the Round Earth Company. Kaya runs and stars in Australia's longest-running play, The Ship That Never Was. The play tells the true story of a group of convicts who stole a ship at Sarah Island and sailed to Chile. She has lived in Strawn for 27 years. Strawn was established in the 1880s and some families who are still here have been around since the 1880s and the 1890s. But then you also have blow-ins like myself who come from elsewhere and have fallen in love with the place. Strawn has a permanent population of about 650 people. The former port town sits on Macquarie Harbour, which is six times the size of Sydney Harbour. It's a base camp for West Coast wilderness tourism and boasts a rich convict history. Upriver is Sarah Island, a colonial penal settlement older than Port Arthur. Strawn is also an access point for the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers National Park, part of Tasmania's World Heritage Area. On September 21, 2020, the fishing town was rocked by Australia's largest mass whale stranding. An estimated 470 pilot whales became beached across Macquarie Harbour, Betsy Bay and Ocean Beach. Over a week, 111 whales were rescued. Hundreds perished. Hi, I'm Luke Emmett from the Devonport Surf Lifesaving Club, Vice President there. Luke is a lifesaver from Devonport, about three hours' drive from Strawn. He was one of the volunteers called upon to help with the whale rescue operation. When I first got there, I didn't realise that it was all the whales out there until you'd seen the water splashing where the big whales were stuck. It kind of looked like a a heap of dead trees in the forest, but there was no forest. Yeah, there were a lot of whales, that's for sure. You see the tails sticking up. It wasn't a great sight, that's for sure. Pictures probably don't do it justice. Luke and his two sons, 18-year-old Jack and 16-year-old Ethan, were initially brought to Strawn to assist with water safety, but ended up helping with the whales. I was helping one lady uh, keep one of the bigger whales upright, so the dorsal fins straight up and down and they're not sort of laying on their side. Uh, gently rock them from side to side's good, is what they were telling us, so they feel as though they're moving. We got the two mother whales strapped to the side of the vessel 
and then we actually picked up the little calves and stuck them on top of the boat. That was pretty rewarding. There was a lot of people involved there. I think it was it took us maybe 12 people to to get each little calf up onto the boat. You could feel that the whales were talking to themselves. It was yeah, sad and rewarding all at the same time. And you mentioned that they were talking to each other, the whales. What did it sound like out there? Oh, you just hear a lot of the little squeal. It's not lots, but yeah, you can definitely hear them, that's for sure. The biggest sound thing, I suppose, is, is when they have a breath. So when the blowhole opens and they squirt water everywhere. Yeah, that's probably the noise that sticks in your mind. But you can hear them talking to each other. They're a toothed whale, so a, a large dolphin, if you like. The males can weigh a couple of tonnes and the females about half that. They communicate by echolocation, so they talk by clicks and squeals and various other noises, and they're very social animals. The pods are very strong and the family bonds are very strong. My name's Annie Phillips. I'm a wildlife vet and I work for Dipipui, the state government in Tasmania. Annie is a wildlife vet at the Department of Primary Industries, Parks, Water and Environment, also known as Dipipui. She's one of the experts who helped with the whales. I've only been to small strandings before, so this was just on a different scale altogether. The number of animals that were involved was huge, plus the other aspect of this stranding which was slightly different was that so many of the the live animals were actually on a sandbar they weren't on a beach so they were submerged in um, around waist deep water depending on the tide which was good and bad it was helping to preserve their health they were less exposed to the sun and they were hydrated by the water but it was bad or it was challenging in terms of the rescue operation itself because it meant that the whales had to be put onto a whale mat and essentially dragged across the sandbar to the channels where we were able to secure them to vessels to be taken to deep water. My name is Belinda Bauer. I work at the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery and I'm the collection manager for Vertebrate Zoology. Zoologist Belinda Bauer remembers a particular local resident who actually relished in the tragedy. The Tasmanian devil population there was making very good use of the carcasses. There was a lot of footprints along the beach and a lot of the deceased animals had two marks in them. So they'd been their flukes and the parts that had been washed up on the beach had Tasmanian devil two marks. There was one fetus that had aborted on the beach that had been pretty much completely eaten by devils. It was just like a head and a spine and flukes and the rest of it was completely eaten. There was even signs devils had walked out onto floating carcasses and were chewing at eyes and and pectoral flippers and things. So I think there's a lot of very well-fed and probably glossy-furred Tasmanian devils around the harbour that have made good use of the stranded animals. Uh, I was on the incident management team as a planning officer. Eddie Steyer from Tasmania's Parks and Wildlife Service was part of the team that coordinated the whale stranding response. That first day there was only about 20 to 30 people involved until we started to build up 
what we needed to undertake the rescue and whatnot. Um, after the first day, the second day, we had close to 80 people and then we had 80 to 100 people every day for about 10 days after that. De Pipwe, Parks and Wildlife, Surf Life Saving and trained volunteers all helped with the rescue and recovery operation. The local fish farms provided people, nets, ropes, as well as jet boats, which are designed for the canals and shallows of the harbour. Kaya Davies says the strong community didn't hesitate to offer their support. There were a lot of people who were brought in from elsewhere around Tasmania who had training, whale rescue training, but you know, the, the local people were helping out in providing a lot of support for the volunteers that were coming in to help with the whale rescue. Um, every single business that ran a restaurant or cafe or eatery provided meals for the volunteers and the rescuers. The local volunteer ambulance were out there throughout the days, every day, to make sure that the rescuers were safe and not getting hypothermia. Dr Annie Phillips would check the health of the whales before they were taken out to sea. I was just doing a general health check to see how how robust and how strong, how responsive the animals were. So it's quite difficult actually to do a health assessment of a live whale at a stranding event. I was looking at things like their heart rate, their respiratory rate, I was able to look at their, sometimes at their mucous membrane colour. I was able to assess their reflexes. And if there was really any chance of the whale successfully surviving out at sea, then we would rescue that animal. Belinda Bauer and her team collected samples from the whales. They found the pod was majority female and juveniles. She says that's typical as the females tend to stick around while adult males go searching for other pods. But Belinda was surprised to find there were more mothers than calves. So it might have been that some of the animals that we were recording that were slightly bigger were still feeding on their mothers. I thought that was quite interesting. (laughs) And it's also known with animals like pilot whales and sperm whales that the babies will actually feed on several mothers. So they might feed on their auntie as well as their mother which means that some of the animals that we released who are juveniles, if their mother had perished, they likely have a good outcome because there's other females in that pod that will let them feed on them. Belinda says it wasn't an easy job collecting samples, especially in the cold, wind and rain. And it was just really long days in a wetsuit. And each animal, you you really want to do sounds ridiculous, but you want to do right by them. You want to get as much information and record the animal as accurately as possible. It was just exhausting. Was the water cold? Yeah, the water was cold. (laughs) My feet were just constantly wet for the length of time I was out there. Annie agrees it was exhausting. You're in cold water that's waist deep for hours and hours and hours on end. It's incredibly hard, obviously, dragging an animal that weighs a couple of tonnes over a sandbar and being very careful. They're large, strong animals with a very powerful tail or fluke and you have to be alert all the time even though, you know, you're in very cold water and you're getting very tired as the days go by. So it is exhausting work 
and you're on a bit of an emotional roller coaster because whilst we were successfully rescuing a lot of whales, there's also a number of, you know, whales that died very early on that we were obviously unable to rescue. So it was quite an emotional roller coaster as well. But Annie says despite that, the feeling among rescuers and volunteers was optimistic. It was intense. It was, I, I guess, that the general atmosphere or the vibe in the group was quite a positive one because although a lot of animals died in, in this stranding, we were actually able to rescue individual whales, which was quite, I think, an, a, an achievement by the, the large group involved, you know. Whale strandings are fairly common in Macquarie Harbour, not at the scale seen last September, but it's part of the natural mortality of whales. The mouth of Macquarie Harbour is known as Hell's Gate because it's a notoriously shallow and dangerous channel. Belinda says the harbour's unique topography could be what makes it a stranding hotspot. It's just a complex of um, tides. It has a really narrow entry and then once inside it's... It's a maze of channels and sloping sandbars and the way the fresh water sort of gushes out of the harbour, it makes it a really confusing place for an animal using their echolocation, particularly if they're unfamiliar with the area. Pilot whales use echolocation to navigate, high-pitched clicks and chirps that give them a picture of their surroundings by bouncing back off hard surfaces. But it's thought when these clicks hit sand, a soft, porous surface, they're smothered, making it hard for whales to basically see a beach or sandbank. And then when an animal does make it out of the harbour, it has to contend with that shallow surf zone along Ocean Beach, which for an exhausted animal or a confused animal, it's really difficult to find its way out of. So I think that's why we saw animals stranding on sandbars in the harbour and then along the beach adjacent to the harbour. And with long-fin pilot whales, you know, they typically tend to forage in deep waters beyond the continental shelf. And I think this group probably came in close to shore chasing food and ended up in the harbour. And with their strong social bonds, if a few animals get in distress, then the whole group follows. Over the past 200 years, there's been 700 single and mass strandings of whales in Tasmania. The last mass stranding was in 1935, when 294 pilot whales became beached at Stanley on the northwest coast. This wasn't the first stranding Kaya Davy had seen in Strawn. One of my very first visits to Strawn um, when I was 12 years old was when there was a whale stranding at Macquarie Heads and I remember uh, going for a very long walk down the beach with my parents and my sister going to have a look at the whale carcasses and and the whales that were being rescued and that's one of my very first earliest memories of, of coming to the west coast and to coming to Strawn. Um, in the time that I've been living here I've been living here on and off for the last nearly 27 years and I think this would be my third whale stranding in that time that I've been aware of and been around for. Eddie Steyer from Parks and Wildlife says they'll be better prepared next time. Probably one thing that we're going to do is review our procedures that we have in place for whale strandings in Tasmania because one thing we did learn out of the stranding is 
probably this procedure wasn't as forward-looking as it should have been and didn't anticipate such a large stranding. So we had had to adjust things as we went to make them fit the scenario because we were used to dealing with sort of strandings of 30 or 40 animals at a time. Up to 60 is, I think, one of the biggest pilot whale strandings we've had in the past down here. So to all of a sudden have a, a stranding 10 times that size sort of throws a curveball a bit. Melinda says the silver lining of such a tragic event is what new data can be discovered. Whales inhabit the open ocean and they have massive distributions and so they're really difficult actually to study in the wild and much of what we know about a lot of different species including pilot whales comes from what we can gather at stranding events. You tend to get a better picture of the diversity of species from the stranding records compared with live surveys. And in fact, there's some species of whales that we only know from stranded whales that we haven't actually ever seen alive, like the spade-toothed whales. And while pilot whales are the most commonly stranded animals, especially like in these mass events, it's still really important to be able to collect as much data as we can at these events because it all adds to our broader understanding of not just the stranding event itself, but of the ecology of that particular species. The stranding drew international attention to Strawn, and it's clear it's had an impact on the fishing village. Kaya Davy again. The effect initially was very, very emotional. What can we do? How can we help? Why did it happen? And then in the weeks following on from that, the effect on the community has been more about how is this going to affect tourists coming to Strawn. In some cases, you have people who are curious and want to come and see the site and be in the place that it happened. There are other people to whom it's too distressing and they don't want to come. For the community themselves, it's not a completely unusual event. We don't like it when it happens, but we do always band together. Kaya Davy there, ending that report by Lara Corrigan. And that's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. And if you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald, It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Special thanks this week go to Cristiano Caldera, Claudia Williams, Megan Powell, Brodie Weeding and Simon McCarthy. This is an ACM podcast.